What is that when you jump around and carry on and do the who dat, who dat stuff? Who dat, you know, that's really kind of a, a fan, you know, that's that's our, our, our chant. Welcome to the Duncan Holder Podcast, a very special edition of the Duncan Holder Podcast. We're flying solo today without Sir Lawrence Larry Holder, uh, giving him a day off. But this is a uh, real treat for me uh, as we kind of do a public service for our subscribers today in the middle of this unprecedented uh, coronavirus quarantine. We're going to talk food today, and I'm really excited about our special guest today. He's a good friend of mine, a former colleague of mine at the Times Picayune, Brett Anderson, who is a a writer for the food desk of the New York Times, was formerly the restaurant critic at the Times Picayune for what, Brett, two decades? Uh, Just shy of that. Yeah, (laughs) just shy of that. Okay. Well, Brett and I arrived at the Times Picayune almost simultaneously, right? And kind of grew our careers together. Uh, at the paper there before both of us have moved on to new locations. So if you could just kind of introduce yourself to our listeners and also kind of describe what your role is uh, at the Times right now. Well, as as you said, uh, you and I, I, I moved to New Orleans back in 2000. I think that was a year after you, Jeff. So I'm a, I'm a New Orleanian by choice, not by birth. And, uh, and I moved there to become the restaurant critic at the Times Picayune. And I did that job, um, which was sort of a winding path in the sense that, um, as you know, Jeff, you, you know, I wasn't reviewing restaurants during Hurricane Katrina. <laughs> um, and uh, same goes during the Bipu oil spill 10 years ago. So I did a lot of news writing and feature reporting as well while I was, while I was there. And, um, but in any event, I, I, I've been writing about restaurants uh, for 25 years and about restaurants in New Orleans for about 20 and a year ago, um, almost exactly, <laughs> uh, you and I both left the Times Picayune, and I'm um, I'm now a contributing writer at the at the New York Times on the food desk, and basically my job is to write, um, you know, sort of long feature stories about restaurant and food culture in the United States. I wasn't brought on specifically to write about New Orleans, although I have done some stories in the last year that are locally based, um, including a story about a week ago that I wrote about um, about how the, the, the restaurants in New Orleans are uh, are dealing with this pandemic. Yeah, and I want to I want to talk about that story uh, in a bit. And, and I'm curious to get your thoughts uh, on uh, how this has progressed even since uh, you wrote the story. I believe it's dated March 28th. I'm sure you were doing reporting on that story uh, a few days even before that. But I got to tell you, you know, I was driving around the city the other day uh, doing some reporting of my own on the on the on the sports scene and, and how New Orleans sports has responded to the pandemic. So we kind of were on parallel paths there. And uh, what struck me, Brett, driving around was it did remind me a little of post-Katrina days in that there were all these, uh, for lack of a better way to describe it, these yard signs, you know, almost like the political signs. Mm-hmm on the medians, on the neutral grounds in our city, from restaurants basically announcing to the public that they're open and you can get takeout here. 
And it reminded me of post-Katrina New Orleans. There was a lot of that going on at the time as the city was recovering. There was kind of halting steps uh, in the recovery. And the restaurant scenes that came, uh, the restaurants that came in uh, early on and helped kind of restore a little bit of normalcy to everyone's lives. Uh, it feels like that to some degree now, uh, but I'm curious to get your thoughts. Do you draw any parallels to that time uh, personally? Um, because I know we were both in the city after Katrina. Sure. I mean, when the pandemic first started and the and the city started to shut down, it, I, I mean, I'm feeling like we're getting close to a month ago now. Um, I naturally started to think about the Katrina period. You know, I feel like it's it's a natural impulse to when you face something that seems a little bit unthinkable, like we all are now, to look back on your life experience to see if it, you know, if you have any uh, <laughs> any knowledge to draw on from past experience. And Katrina seems sure. like an obvious thing to look back on, right? And and certainly um, the emptiness of the city. I mean, I've never seen New Orleans as as, as sort of traffic-free and shut down as it is today, um, except during Katrina. And um, and I think that that is uh, just a it's a parallel. It's it's an impossible connection not to make for those of us who who were there during Katrina. I think. Um, and as far as the restaurants go, um, you know, w- when I first started talking to people in New Orleans, restaurateurs and people who work at restaurants about how they were dealing with. You know this new normal, which which is a phrase that also became popular during Katrina. Um, invariably, you know the veteran restaurant folks, of which there are a lot in New Orleans, um, would talk about Katrina. I mean, there was even one guy I was interviewing for the New York Times who kept talking about the pandemic as "quote unquote" the storm. <laughs> you know, it was just it, and he was doing it subconsciously. You know, I mean, and. Uh, and I feel like w- one reason I, I decided to, to pitch that story to the Times is while everyone in the country or virtually everyone, you know, um, is experiencing this, this crisis at the same time. And um, I do feel as if the, the restaurant community in New Orleans is unique in, the, in that it feels as if it's faced extinction once before. And there's been a lot of talk since all of these mass closures have happened across the country about how vulnerable the restaurant business is, how vulnerable hospitality workers are, and whether or not the restaurant business can can survive this. And so that was sort of a topic I brought to a lot of the conversations I had with restaurateurs in New Orleans, you know, like, are there any best practices that you learned during Katrina that enabled you to survive that you can apply to this moment? And a lot of, you know, the answer was like kind of yes and no. <laughs> um, you know, as, mm-hmm. you, as you mentioned, Jeff, um, those signs on the neutral ground is reminiscent of Katrina. But also, you recall, I mean, we experienced this together a lot as during Katrina, you could actually go into the restaurants <laughs> and stay <Right>. <laughs> yeah, and sit down and commune <laughs> with people. You know, I mean, and that service uh, that they provided during Katrina was even more, I think, than the food, because a lot of the restaurants were working with very limited menus. You know, they weren't exactly at full tilt in terms of the cuisine, in the, at least in the early weeks after Katrina. But the atmosphere, the um, the camaraderie, the you know, the free flow and wine, the the ability to 
to run into people that you hadn't seen and that you didn't know were back. Um, you know, that particular experience was so rejuvenating during Katrina. And I, I do believe the lasting legacy of the restaurant community in Katrina is profound. I mean, I think that they really showed early on that Hurricane Katrina did not have to be sort of the end, <laughs> you know? I mean, as as you know, when we were right. going around the city for a while, when there was nothing open, no one was around, it sort of seemed impossible to imagine how the city could rebuild. But when restaurateurs came back and chefs and all their employees and all those restaurant professionals came back and decided to give a, make a go of it, and they opened the restaurants, and they felt as if they felt something like New Orleans felt before the storm, that was just... I feel like an incalculable lift to to the city and an example that, you know, it was going to be hard work to rebuild, but it would ultimately be worth it. And if you rebuilt, there would be these businesses that would be there with you. And um, I still to this day think that that's, you know, that's a service that, that restaurants provided in New Orleans that was incredibly important to its rebuilding. There was a quote in in your story that, I, that stuck out to me. It was from Michael Heck, the president and CNO, CEO of GNO Inc., Greater New Orleans, uh, you know, incorporated. And he, he said, without a robust culinary scene, we lose more than just dollars. We lose our essence. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're speaking to? You know, in, in New Orleans, the culinary scene is, is obviously a huge business and a huge part of our economy, but it means so much more to the people of our city than any place certainly I've ever lived. Yeah, I mean, that what he was talking about, and obviously in stories, that was a small part of a larger conversation. And But what he was basically talking about is that, um, you know, the, the, the restaurants in New Orleans um, provide something to the city's economy that can't really be measured just simply in dollars. You know, I mean, that was something I wanted to kind of hear from him. I was interested in hearing from someone who wasn't a restaurateur about how important that particular sector of the economy is. And it, it, and he said, you know, in, in term, in pure monetary numbers, it certainly is important. But that is far overshadowed shadowed by sort of these intangible things that the that the restaurant scene brings to the city. And some of the examples he gave that weren't in the story were like, you know, when you're trying to recruit people you know, good professionals to move to New Orleans to work. Um, a big, big attraction is the city and the restaurants and the culture of the city. You know, that is one of the reasons that you can lure sort of small startup companies to New Orleans or, you know, some of the talent that the businesses try to, to bring to New Orleans. The, 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 uh, the attraction of living in a city that has such a vibrant culture and that has such amazing restaurants, frankly, is a big part of that sell. And the same goes for the tourism industry, obviously, which is which, you know, you can't overstate the importance of tourism to New Orleans and its economy. And um, and that's kind of what I think he was talking about when he talked about its essence, you know, in that conversation about about the economy that is also a conversation sort of about, you know, the city's soul <laughs> and, and, and what, what it is that we like about it, right? And, um, and that, I think, is a difference perhaps between the restaurant community in New Orleans and that and the restaurant communities in other places. It's not to say that, you know, the unemployed chefs and, and servers and so forth in, in cities that aren't New Orleans are, you know, 
that we shouldn't feel bad for them too. But just as a collected group, it's hard to think of a place in the country where restaurants matter more um, to the sort of civic life and the civic health of the city. Well, we're now three weeks in uh, to this quarantine. It's only three weeks. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It feels like three months. Uh, Well, John Bell Edwards ordered all Louisiana restaurants to stop dine-in service on March 16th. You and I were actually out a few days before that, uh, having a steak dinner at Crescent City Steaks in Mm Mid-City with a group of friends. Uh, That was my last meal in a restaurant um, before the before the you know Governor Edwards kind of shut down dine-in service, uh, how how do you think? Uh, how first of all, how has this dynamic changed? I know initially you reported on it for your story in the New York Times. We're now over a week removed from when that story uh, has been published. Uh, how has the dynamic changed? Has it changed? How is this thing evolving? Uh, for the restaurant business in New Orleans? Well, I, it, one thing I should say is that a week ago, I, my wife and I drove from New Orleans to Miami to be with our two young children who were with my, my wife's in-laws. Um, so I've been away from the city for a week, but I've been, you know, staying. There's some other reporting I've been doing, and so I've been following what's happening. Um, I think that a change that um, I'm noticing is sort of a pivot away from restaurateurs and talking about, um, well, let me put it this way. I I do talk to more restaurateurs now who are very um, anxious about the sort of conflict between wanting to stay open and serve takeout food to serve their communities and to keep, you know, at least a few of their employees on the job and a fear that staying open could be endangering people, that it could be, you know, that, that their employees could be infecting each other or that, um, that customers could be doing that. And, you know, I really, I'm not saying that every restaurateur I talk to is having this particular, um, struggle um, or that all necessarily should. But I do believe that that is something that people are now kind of more openly becoming worried about. And um, and I don't really, you know, <laughs> it's hard for me to say what the best decision is there. You know, I do think it's possible for people to be as careful as, you know, to be careful and to be safe and to, to serve people food. Um, but, you know, times are tough (laughs) and, um, you know, and there's also, there's people who don't have the ability to go to the grocery store maybe, or, you know, and that they need to go grab a pizza. Um, and it would seem odd for there to be a city full of people with no food service, (laughs) um, beyond grocery stores, Mm -hmm. you know, what that would that do for grocery stores? So I think the, you know, the, to answer your question, I think the calculations just gotten a lot more complicated. And um, as this has dragged on and as it's become clear that New Orleans is a particularly severely hit community, um, you know, that I think is brought that fact, I think, is troubling to folks. And that wasn't necessarily clear when the governor originally shut places down. It wasn't clear that we were perhaps worse off than other communities. And um, 
And that's part of that kind of more difficult calculus now. And initially, a lot of places, uh, a lot of restaurants were uh, offering takeout service uh, incrementally, it seems like, over the last few weeks. More and more of them have performed that calculus uh, in their minds and probably uh, out of respect to their uh, employees decided that they can't continue to go on. Uh, you know, and I'm sure that was a very difficult decision for a lot of the owners and managers and restaurateurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that said, for our listeners out there who are in New Orleans, um, what, what places are still serving takeout that you would recommend? Are there places you've, you've uh, been to or places that you know uh, from previous uh, visits that you would recommend for people that are looking maybe – you know, we're all cooking more than, than we have before, and we're all eating in mm-hmm. uh, more than ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every once in a while, you just want to get out and get a get a meal. Maybe you want to support a local Absolutely. restaurant that's in your neighborhood. Where would you recommend for some people around town uh, in different areas? Well, I'll tell you, you know, being not in New Orleans at the moment, <laughs> um, you know, right. I've been thinking a lot about um, New Orleans food and what I'd be like like what I'd like to be eating right now if I were home. And the first thing that comes to mind right now is crawfish. <laughs> um, this is the height of crawfish season. I mean, we are at the absolute peak of it, um, meaning that this is the time of year when, when the crawfish are sort of at the perfect size. They're big, they're meaty, um, they're plentiful generally. And right when you come out of the beginning of April is at every year is really when I just go crazy for crawfish. And if I was in New Orleans right now, I mean, some of my favorite places, the last I checked, were still serving. And I would urge anyone who takes any tips from this to call (laughs) any place they go to first because these things change a lot. But I'm a big fan of Bevy, B-E-V-I, seafood. They do takeout crawfish in uh, mid-city. I like today's catch that's spelled K-E-T-C-H down in the parish, down in St. Bernard and Chalmette. I think there's excellent crawfish. Um, there's a place called J&J, um, which is on the West Bank in Gretna, that serves some of my favorite crawfish in the whole, in the area. And, you know, last weekend, the day before uh, my wife and I drove to New Orleans, we actually drove out to Cajun country and... Um, which I, you know, to my tastes, I always take this position is that, you know, crawfish in Cajun country is, um, I love, don't get me wrong, I love eating crawfish in New Orleans, but I, there's something special about the way they prepare crawfish in, in Cajun country, particularly at a handful of places. And one of them is called Cajun Claws, which is in Abbeville. Uh, it's a little over a two hour drive. In fact, uh, Jeff, you and I went there together almost exactly a year ago. Yep. Uh, a week after they sold the Times Picayune, <laughs> um, and we picked up a batch there, and um, and ended up uh, taking it and eating it at this lakefront park in Morgan City, <laughs> and it was just—I mean, it's it, it was a, it's an indelible memory. <laughs> um, the crawfish is just magnificent, and um, and I would urge people who are interested in taking a drive in New Orleans, or if you have listeners out in Cajun Country, to go give those guys a try in Abbeville, and I and I think it's a nice. Saturday thing to do. Um, you do need to call all these places. It does pay to, to, to call and order in advance. Um, but I also think about, about food that, that travels well. 
right? <laughs> um, you know, there's a, sure. there's a lot of my favorite restaurants that, you know, I, Trout Meunier doesn't really travel in a car that well, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> as much as I love that, you know, that old French Creole cooking. Um, but, you know, Blue Giant, which is a relatively new Chinese-style restaurant on Magazine Street run by an old chef from Koshan, um, is, is, was incredible. It was, I think, probably the hottest new restaurant in New Orleans before the pandemic. I've noticed it's still kind of hard to get a call in <laughs> to make an order, but it's yep. not at all like it was before the storm. And, and they've got a lot of great noodle dishes and dumplings and so forth that, that are really delicious and travel very well. Um, I also think of some of the barbecue places in New Orleans. You know, that is another food that, that travels well. And, you know, you can make, you can make fried rice with the leftovers or tacos, that kind of thing. Um, and, and people don't think of New Orleans that much as a, as a barbecue town, but there are some pretty good places. Uh, I'm a fan of The Joint down in Bywater and Blue Oak up in Mid-City are both good places that last I checked were both serving. In fact, I was on a bike ride the, the morning before we left and rode by The Joint and they were the smoker was going at 7 in the morning. <laughs> so um, Love it. that was a good sign. Um, you know, th those are the, th those are the places that, that, that really come to mind. Um, and again, you know, a lot of the, of the more, um, you know, the sit down restaurants where Jeff, where you and I would love to be meeting and having a bottle of wine right now, <laughs> if not right now, later today, um, <laughs> aren't, you know, aren't serving their full menu or aren't open at all. Right. Um, and, and so that's kind of where my mind is drifting to these other style of places. You know, I know after Katrina, the restaurant scene, and you documented this uh, so well uh, during, during your days at the time, speaking of how the restaurant scene changed and became more diverse, mm -hmm. uh, really a, a lot of different kinds of food you could get, the offerings uh, in the city. Uh, it was a, it was great. All of a sudden, you know, you could go out and get uh, good Indian food or a good Thai food. Mm -hmm. uh, there was just a lot of different uh, restaurants that opened uh, as opposed to what we were used to. I think, you know, everyone thinks of New Orleans food as Creole-based uh, 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 or, or, you know, kind of misperception is that it's, there's a lot of Cajun food here, which is not necessarily mm -hmm. uh, accurate. Mm -hmm. But do you think something like this could happen after this pandemic or is it just completely different and such an unprecedented situation that there's no way to even know what's going to happen? Well, you know, one of the things that that spurred the change you're talking about in the restaurant scene in New Orleans following Katrina was a was a very um, a kind of an unprecedented change in the demographics of the city. Um, right. And, I, you know, I know I wrote a story for The New Yorker on the 10th anniversary of Katrina. And at that time, um, more than a quarter of the population of post-Katrina New Orleans um, were transplants, meaning, you know, as of 10 years, of, so as of 2015, more than a quarter of the people in New Orleans did not live there during Katrina. And that is for a city that prior to the storm was one of the most provincial, you know, it, one of the cities in the country that had the highest level of sort of natives living in it. That's a big, big change. And what you saw in the restaurant scene was people catering to the tastes of these new arrivals, right? And I don't know if this, because this particular crisis is affecting every, you know, the whole country, basically. Um, I It's hard for me to see how 
it would prompt a similar demographic shift that Katrina did. You know, I, I think a lot of that sort of new blood, you might say, that came to New Orleans were, were a lot of people who um, had come to the city to try to kind of lift it up or to, to, to volunteer to help rebuild homes, that kind of thing, um, and kind of and fell in love with the place. Or, you know, in that period of time, you saw the rents going up really, really high in places on the, on the coasts. And people looked to New Orleans as a, as a relatively inexpensive place that you could live that was also exciting, you know? I mean, one of the things that attracts people to San Francisco and New York and so forth is that it's very exciting. Well, New Orleans is nothing if not interesting. Um, and so I think it's a little bit early to say about whether or not the, this crisis is gonna impact the, the, the restaurant scenes in New Orleans. I mean, to be honest, the thing I hope for the most is that it could get, you know, that it could get back to the level it was. <laughs> and you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I just hope that a lot of the places um, that have had to close can reopen, you know, and that there's enough staff, that there's enough demand. You know, the, the city did have, um, we have a lot of restaurants relative to our population. And, you know, they're sort of built to serve a community that is, um, boosted by tourism, right? And, uh, and that's a really important piece of the puzzle that has to come back in order for the restaurant scene to kind of return to what it was. And, you know, right now it's, it just seems, you mentioned it's only been three weeks. It does seem like so much longer. And it's, I, I don't know. It's the, the idea of planning a vacation where you would get on a flight right now just seems it's hard to imagine for some reason. I, you know, I hope that changes quickly. No, <laughs> um, no I'm with you. you know? I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm really, you and I have talked about it. I mean, I'm really looking forward to getting back into a restaurant. Oh. Oh. I think it's so much, so much a part of our, our social scene here. It, it's, uh, you know, it goes beyond just getting a good meal. It's, it's the atmosphere. Uh, it's how we live in New Orleans. Uh, so much a part of the experience here in living in the city. And I'm curious, I mean, um, when this and if this lifts, let's, God willing, hope it lifts at some point soon. Where, where are you going to go? Where's Brett Anderson going to go eat <laughs> oh, gosh. your first meal after after the shutdown? I'm putting you on the spot. My first I know, meal. but, uh, um, you know, where, where would you want to go that you've been craving? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I have to say, I've, since moving to New Orleans, in 2000, I lived away for one year. And I know from that experience that when I do leave New Orleans, when I don't have access to its food, the things I crave the most are the old restaurants that serve a kind of food you can only find in New Orleans, right? <laughs> and right. so my, the scratch I'm going to want to itch is, is, is going to be for a restaurant, um, really kind of my, my favorite of the older traditional restaurants are really Brightson's, which is a Cajun Creole restaurant up in the, um, in the Riverbend neighborhood run by Frank Brightson and his wife, Marna, who are, I believe that they've been at it for 30 years. Maybe it's shot a, a tad more at this point. And, um, and Clancy's, which I know is Jeff's, Jeff's favorite. I, I really look forward to getting back there and getting, Getting a fried smoked, uh, half, you know, cold smoked soft shell crab or a veal chop and ordering something from, they got a lot of nice burgundies on that wine list. 
Um, I'm also in Upper Line um, is the other Joanne Clevenger's restaurant. Also, all those are uptown restaurants. Um, and and I love the food, the gumbo and the, and the um, puppy drum Amadine at Upper Line. But I also just love seeing Joanne, who's just an amazing hostess. Um, those are, you know, those are the places that I really think about because they're so singular, you know, I mean, it's not to say that other restaurants in New Orleans aren't unique in their ways, but, um, but those are truly signature, singular restaurants. I also just generally, you know, before the pandemic, um, a handful of the places that I just, I found as, you know, as a restaurant critic, I put on my nerd hat, um, were performing at a very high level it's Bywater American Bistro in the Bywater, obviously Nina Compton's the chef there, um, I really feel that restaurant, I think it's three years old now, it just has really come into its own in the last year and a half. Um, and uh, it, it, a place that's become something of a standby, although I consider it, still consider it relatively new, is Pesh. Um, Donald Link and Ryan Pruitt's uh, seafood restaurant in the Warehouse District is just it's top notch. It's one of my favorite places to eat oysters anywhere, but they also do amazing wood, wood oven fired whole fish. Um, it's just, I love the food there. And I'm a big fan of Coquette, um, up on magazine street, uh, um, Michael Stolfitz and, uh, Kristen Essig are a couple that run that restaurant. And it's, um, I think one of the more successful sort of really ambitious, uh, in terms of its food, um, Bywater American Bistro, I'd probably put in that same, in that same group. Uh, and I think it's just an excellent, excellent place. You know, Coquette right now, I think they're still doing takeout. I may be wrong, but I know a lot of people have been ordering their fried chicken, which I have not had. Oh, have had fried chicken? <laughs> it's good. Yeah. I mean, I, they used to okay. serve it on their brunch menu. Um, and yeah, it's exceptional. I also should say, you know, I believe it's a week from this Thursday is Holy Thursday. And Holy Thursday was the the sort of most, uh, the busiest and kind of most sacred day at Dookie Chase's, uh, which is a historic restaurant in the Treme neighborhood of New Orleans. It's a very important restaurant in the history of New Orleans, particularly as a Black-owned place that was a, you know, became a meeting place during the Civil Rights era and in an era when restaurants were segregated. Well, Leah Chase, um, last Holy Thursday, she was in her 90s. She had to go to the hospital. And she died, I think it was less than two months later. Um, I believe she was 96. So this will be the first Holy Thursday at, at Dookie Chase that Leah Chase will not be around for. Of course, they're not open, but they will be serving takeout. And, and one of the unique um, aspects of Holy Thursday at, at, at Dookie Chase's is they, they serve something called gumbo zerb or green, green gumbo, which is this gumbo that's made with, with all of these different pureed greens, mustard greens, collard greens. And it looks a little bit like you tuck a, you put a ladle into the swamp, <laughs> you know, and, um, right. and, it, and it's, but it's absolutely delicious. I mean, it's, there's, there's meat in it. And, um, but it's a, it's a, it's a very special and pretty rare New Orleans dish. And the tradition is that, you know, there's three seatings of Holy Thursday lunch at Dookie Chase. They're very hard to get seats at. I'm lucky enough to get invited by our old colleague, John Pope, every year. Um, the sort of legendary obituary writer for the Times-Picune has a standing table. And um, and the tradition is you order these big platters of fried chicken, pass them around the table, and then everyone gets some green gumbo. Um, and if I was in New Orleans next Thursday, I'd be going to pick that up. 
you, you talking about fried chicken made me think about it. Well, you know, I'm sure you would agree with me. Places like Dookie Chase's, Clancy's, Upper Line, they're such uh, integral parts of the neighborhoods and uh, the citizens of New Orleans that live here. Uh, those, those are institutions. And uh, you and I have been to Clancy's during hurricane warnings and the place <laughs> yeah. is packed, right? Yeah. So what do you think these places are going to be like the first night they reopen after this? Don't you think it's going to be incredible scenes? Oh, at, at my these God, places? yeah. <laughs> I, I really do. I, I just I think that people are going to feel like they a release valve has been pulled of some kind and uh, and are going to going to flock to restaurants you know it'll be see it'll be interesting to see when these restrictions are lifted what if there'll be some modulating restrictions put in place at the same time you know i mean right. perhaps restaurants will open with you know remember just before the shutdown they were talking about you could only serve 50 percent of your capacity that kind of thing it's possible you know as i imagine how this thing winds down that it'll be gradual and that those sort of restrictions could possibly mute <laughs> the the sort of scenes that you're talking about and that you're imagining. That said, I think that they will be, um, I think they will be uplifting places that uh, I really hope to be there to <laughs> experience myself. All right, buddy. Well, I know you've got to get going. Um, I really appreciate. You're joining our podcast, enlightening us on the food scene, maybe hopefully improving our culinary tastes. I know you can't do much to help my palate out much, but you certainly have over the years <laughs> tried to Hate help for me. lack of trying. <laughs> it's exactly. Uh, but uh, appreciate and uh, want to wish you and Natalie and the boys all the best down there in Florida. And uh, hopefully we'll get together soon and, uh, you know, share a glass of wine over a meal and kind of... Uh, toast to better days ahead. Yeah, I can't. I can't wait for that. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for all you guys are doing. All right, I want to thank everyone out there for listening uh, to this special edition of the Duncan Holder podcast. Larry and I will return to our regular schedule next week. Uh, we'll be talking New Orleans sports, uh, but this was a lot of fun tonight, and we might uh, be kind of doing a few more of these one-offs as we uh, journey into the sportsless world that we're in right now. So. Hopefully uh, you enjoyed it as well, and be sure to rate us, review us on iTunes and Spotify and all the other uh, platforms that we're on on the Duncan Holder Podcast. I want to thank everybody again for listening to Duncan Holder on the Athletic Podcast Network.